Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a new report is saying that the downtown core is seeing an increase to jobs and a drop in vacancies. This is good news. Is it going to ripple out to other parts of Hamilton? Presto cards are going to be taking the place of paper HSR tickets, and it's not really going over well at Hamilton City Hall. And does a mystery group taking out ads in major Toronto newspapers that attack teachers' unions sound sketchy to you? Well, the NDP thinks so. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Some different stuff going on here in the city. And uh, City Council, as we mentioned, uh, is uh, going to be meeting tomorrow to hear, uh, well, we've already showed you uh, two of the proponents uh, that want to do something with the entertainment district downtown. Now we find out that, uh, by the way, there's a third one uh, that will be submitted, uh, the Pearl uh, Entertainment Group, Pearl Hospitality Group. Uh, by the way, with two iconic local names here, the Chinconis and Waxmans. Uh, among others who are teaming up for that, too. But uh, uh, we'll get to that in a couple of seconds. And uh, there's something about public transit. And, and we Paul Triple just mentioned this on the news a couple of minutes ago, that uh, we're getting rid of HSR tickets, uh, and we're going with the Presto Pass. But there's a catch, a financial catch to this that's got a number of councillors very upset, and we're going to get into that uh, in just a couple of minutes. First, though, I want to uh, highlight a report that uh, is up right now, and it talks about downtown employment, downtown businesses, and uh, it's a good news report. And, you know, among all the, the controversies about some of the other things that council has dealt with, it's uh, always good uh, to get some positive news about this. Jobs apparently are up in the downtown core. Storefront vacancies are down in this downtown core as well. Jason Farr is the councillor for Ward 2 in the downtown area. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML to expand on this. Uh, councillor Farr, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hey, you said it. Good news. I'm on. Hey, listen, I've got to ask you, but we're going to get into some of the, the details about this in just a couple of seconds. Uh, but as I just mentioned, and I know you're aware, when you guys meet tomorrow to talk about uh, the downtown entertainment district, uh, there is yet a third proposal, proponent anyway, who has come forward. Uh, and uh, the Pearl uh, uh, group here, the uh, hospitality group, uh, with the, uh, the Chinconis and the Waxmans, Look, a year ago, you guys couldn't draw flies with a rate of proposals, and now this is, well, counting the one on the on the mountain, this is the fourth one that you've had to deal with. Yeah. What, what's going on that, here? Well, I, I think we brought some clarity. I think when we're, you know, going to get into what we're talking about with our latest update on, on, you know, the revitalization efforts being successful with our downtown office vacancy and our employment survey, and certainly residential is up, that has a lot to do with the interest that's out there. People want to be part of a revitalization effort, especially in a core. And uh, certainly I think uh, with, um, you know, the clarity we offered about a year ago that you and I talked about, Bill, with respect to what council's intentions were, uh, no impact to the levy, uh, the operating and the capital that we had requested with some clarity and had staff go and get these term sheets together by what you have correctly uh, noted, three um, contenders, three uh, very serious consortia that uh, all need to be taken into account and uh, carefully scrutinized for sure tomorrow at GIC. So there, there's a number of factors at play that bring the sincerity that we're seeing in terms of the investments uh, or the potential investments anyway from these three consortia. Yeah, but what's interesting about this is I've just had an overview, and of course we've had Mr. Mercandi on, PGA was on, and mm-hmm. uh, and Mario Frankovich was here from the Rancor group last week. We have yet to hear from uh, the others, but I got, I got a thumbnail sketch about what they're looking for. Uh, and they're looking at the whole enchilada here. I mean, they're talking about all three facilities plus some uh, some some other uh, office towers, condos, and things of this nature. The, the mantra here seems to be go big or go home. Yeah, absolutely. And that was part of the conversation 
Um, we're not just looking at, you know, can you paint the FOC and add more space to the art gallery and uh, the convention facilities. Uh, we really, um, you know, kept our minds open to uh, the bigger picture and the opportunities for growth uh, in and around uh, and adjacent to uh, these facilities. And certainly each uh, proponent has, has, you know, achieved that in one way or another or, or more than one way. Uh, as it relates to the different uh, bids. And certainly uh, when you look at uh, what Mario has been uh, uh, pitching on behalf of uh, Brancourt with the offices attached to a major renovation of the First Ontario Centre, and, and certainly when we look at the, the report we're talking about today, Bill, uh, you know, office vacancies are down. There's obviously a desire to be part of office space, and good office space will obviously be part of that uh, mix because it, it would be new. Um, you know, and then there's there's uh, residential opportunities. There's uh, you know different uh, ideas uh, with respect to growth in and around and adjacent to uh, you know the mandate that we've we've uh, you know put forward for outside uh, proponents to invest in the downtown and the entertainment facilities. You you know we we talked early on about you know, uh, air rights. I mean, you, you don't need to, if you were going to renovate the FOC, uh, you know, there are things you can do above the FOC that we don't see now uh, because we have a downtown secondary plan in place. And that happened officially about a year, a year and a half ago. And so uh, we're, we're allowing for, and, and people that are, are seriously, you know, contending to invest are aware of this now as well, that we have actual policy in place uh, to make it, uh, you know, bigger than, just simply renovations of facilities. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I can't ask you to speak for your council colleagues. But uh, and and th- by the way, we should. I don't want to get people's hopes up. I mean, council's not going to commit to anything tomorrow. They're just going to listen at this stage. And I assume you're going to ask staff to look into this and, and do all the number crunching and everything. But uh, we don't want to kick this down the road too far. I mean, the, you, you know, a lot of the, the the bones are already here right now, and these people are, in, are pretty anxious. I seem to think to get things going here. So I mean, here, here's hoping that there could be a quick turnaround and a decision made on this sooner than later. Well, hey, you know, we talked about it. If there's one thing we, you know, of the many themes with the Limeridge proposal by Michael Landlauer, and out of great respect to his 16 years of passion and devotion to this community, we said, yes, we'll definitely take the pitch seriously, and we, we did. And we, we came back with a staff report because we said we would. But one, one of the themes was uh, uh, clearly, we want to get moving. Uh, Michael <laughs> screamed that from the rooftops of the oh, yeah. former Cops Coliseum. Uh, I, I could say confidently, I, the, the majority, if not all of council, including the mayor, would like to uh, get us uh, to a point where we have one consortia and one that's very much you know, written in stone, good to go with timelines and in very short, or- short order. But Bill, yes, realistically, uh, tomorrow we'll probably spend a considerable amount of time looking at each term sheet uh, and, and we'll probably, you know, in, in all likelihood, I mean, there'll be lots of questions to those delegates from PJ's group, from Darko's group, uh, and quite possibly a late entry delegate from the new group that we're learning about in public session and lots of questions. Uh, from our colleagues uh, around the table to those uh, proponents who are speaking to us in public session. But a lot of time, because it is contractual, potentially legal, we're dealing with real estate, all of those things uh, will be obviously uh, 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 debated uh, uh, you know, behind closed doors and 
certainly we're meeting the requirements of the Municipal Act when we're dealing with these things. At this point, that said, and understanding what you're talking about right now, and I think what everybody is hopeful for in the community, sooner rather than later, let's get it out there. Uh, let's 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 uh, you know pare these ideas down and make something big happen sooner rather than later. All right, let's get into some of the uh, the, the stats in this report that came out here, uh, and it's it's as we mentioned off the top, good news report. Uh, six almost seventy percent of the downtown jobs are full time jobs, twenty three percent part time. Uh, only seven percent are seasonal. One of the things I really noticed here that jumped out at me, and and I, I give council credit for this because of the incentive grants that you put in here. Uh, the number of renovations on heritage buildings. I mean, we have some great old buildings, uh, houses and biz- offices, etc. downtown. Uh, and anybody who's been down there lately can understand, especially down along James Street down that through that corridor, uh, there's an awful lot of renovation and re- effective reuse of a lot of those buildings now. And, and, and look at it. It's, it's selling. I mean, they become prime real estate properties. You look at the success of the Sonic Onions, uh, the you know, Sovey and Kiyakowski, they're renovating buildings. They're taking advantage of probably the most robust heritage grants and loan programs in all of Ontario, if not Canada. And and then they're getting the, the kind of rents you see in Toronto for, for very funky and original office space in a heritage building. And, and so there's definitely a market for that. Last time you and I spoke, or the second to last time, I think, Bill, we talked about finally the, the, the Blanchard folks, uh, the Houston Business Corporation, moving on, on the Gore properties, which is an absolute game changer. We've been waiting a long time. They recognize this. Their board recognizes this. There's so many approvals that are now in play. Uh, demolition's ready to get going on the back half, not the front, but a, a, a I think they absolutely have witnessed what you're talking about, the, the value of restoration, taking advantage of those heritage grants and loan programs, and the turnaround uh, and the advantages in terms of the rents that they're receiving in terms of office and commercial uh, availability. And, and it's not just, you know, those bigger groups that I've mentioned, but, you know, those folks that are making the grassroots people making those investments and in cleaning up buildings uh, inside and out and uh, benefiting and reaping the rewards in terms of the tendencies they're seeing. And ultimately, uh, you know, that's showing in the stats we're talking about today. It's it's fantastic. Our survey team went out, Bill, they, they went talked to over 2,233 properties. That's in, in the downtown business growth district or, or growth district. And that goes all the way, James to the tracks to the north and uh, James to, to uh, Charlton to the south and essentially between uh, Victoria and Queen and, and Cannon and Hunter. So you get a picture of where we went and did our surveys and the increase close to 1% uh, for a total of 186 more jobs since our 2018 survey and, and the results uh, found a high concentration of these full-time jobs, as you noted, almost 70%. Bill. So this is all great stuff. I mean, for a long time, I was saying we have 25,000 people coming to downtown every day to work. It's actually 26,305 now. So uh, statistically, things are working out in our favor, and you know it's a it's a combined effort. It's not just council and mayors of the past terms, and we're going way back to Deany when you're talking about uh, downtown incentive programs. Uh, I don't mean way back; he's not that old. But Larry, uh, you know, in the council of that day, who put together those CIPs, uh, uh, essential improvement plan areas, and offered all those incentives, we're starting to see obviously, uh, the benefits of reducing development charges to inspire growth. And ultimately, that's not just, you know, growth and cleaning up buildings, but it brings the people, the jobs, the commercial, the office, but also the residential, which isn't necessarily part of this report, but that's certainly important as well. 
One of the other things that jumps out here is vacancy rate. Uh, and the list here right now talks about a 10.4% vacancy rate. Uh, I can remember having a discussion with Dave Blanchard years ago when we were doing a show from one of the downtown buildings, uh, and he was very concerned about the the rate then and saying, you know, you're not going to get too many people wanting to put more office towers in because we can't fill the ones we've got. That seems to be turning around now. Yeah, I think there's two things. What I, I've noticed as counselor, and this is anecdotal, uh, I guess, uh, it's not necessarily part of the report. We are seeing a reduction in the vacancy on office, and that's huge. It's really important to us. A lot of that means full-time jobs when we fill those vacancies, and we're at an all-time low in in terms of the last 10 years, as you mentioned. Um, People are coming here looking for new uh, 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 tech-incorporated office space, so so office space that has all the bells and whistles that that meet the expectations of of newer industry or new, new commercial or office uh, tendencies in this era. And then the other thing that we've already talked about, there's, you know, those modern startups that, you know, essentially require to be in that funky, restored heritage building, buildings of character, and they take care of all that tech stuff as well, the Sobeys and the and the Kiyakowskis and the Sonic Onions when they do the renovating as well. So that's all built in. So there, there's that original office uh, uh, a desire from certain small corporations and then the larger offices when they're newer or very much updated. You look what Premi did at 25 Main Street West, uh, an entire floor that you don't even feel like you're in that 19, late 60s, early 70s office building anymore. It took the hanging ceilings away, opened it up, uh, a real industrial, uh, open concept feel. The other thing we're doing, obviously, Bill, is uh, very much as a council supporting uh, cooperative workspace. And so there's more and more of that, and that report indicates this, this growth in, you know, you're working with a bunch of other smaller businesses in one big room, usually those restored heritage buildings or easily designated heritage buildings in a collaborative work environment uh, should you choose to collaborate but you have your own little space or you're sharing different functions in the office and uh, those are proving to be more and more popular in addition we also uh, you know I think we need to celebrate this to even a greater extent tomorrow at general issues committee with council because when you consider the trend towards this telecommuting a lot of offices now are saying to their workers, you know what, you you don't need a cubicle here on the 17th floor. You could actually do this job now with the technical technology that's out there, uh, you know, from your car, from your home office. And there is definitely a trend towards that as some corporations, usually larger corporations, seek to reduce, you know, the, the leasing uh, uh, operating costs. One uh, area of concern, well, I guess there's more than one, but the one, one major one here that's a bit of a fly in the ointment here, uh, the overwhelming majority of people who work downtown are in, in uh, public sector jobs, uh, you know, government jobs, federal, provincial, municipal as well, uh, and health services, and they tend, oh, those buildings don't pay property taxes. So there's still some work to do here. And I, but this is a, it's a pretty, pretty clear indication, I guess, that we're moving in the right direction, though. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think it's any different than probably statistically we're right at par with most major cities in Canada in terms of the, the government jobs, the provincial, even federal, and of course uh, municipal jobs located in the city centre. Uh, the one thing that we can be assured of is most of those jobs are good-paying jobs. And yeah. We're proud of that from a municipal level, provincial level, federal level. And guess what? They're going for lunch at the new restaurants. They're you know hopefully doing some Christmas shopping at the mom-pa uh, shops to get something different and unique for their loved ones uh, during the holiday season. So th- there is that 
spend that's attached, and, and perhaps it is an institutional use, an office institutional use that maybe doesn't collect the taxes, but there are those uh, offshoots that uh, do benefit, obviously, the greater uh, business district. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, lots to talk about, uh, especially in the downtown core, and we'll uh, have to pick this up another time. Thanks so much for the time today, Jay. Have a great day, Bill, and everybody else listening to AM 900. War 2 Councillor Jason Farr. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you've been hearing on CHML News, there was a plan now in place to phase out the sale of paper HSR tickets and replace them with these Presto cards that uh, many other municipalities have already been using, which sounds like, well, that's just the transition that happens. You know, where this is the 21st century, we need to get onto that. But there are financial ramifications, uh, good and bad, uh, to what's going on here. Uh, it, there's a, a lot to unpack here to try to make some sense out of all this. Uh, we're pleased to welcome Chad Collins, the counselor for Ward 5, uh, to the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us some insight into this. Chad, thanks for jumping in here. Appreciate the time today. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on, Bill. This has been on for the, this press tour. I, I still remember going to the, the press conference at Union Station in Toronto uh, when I was the deputy mayor one time. Larry Deany, I think, was the mayor at this time. And this was like, that's got to be 16, 17 years ago. And they said, within a year and a half or so, this is going to be all across the southern Ontario and the Golden Horseshoe. It's <laughs> taken a little longer. Governments it do has. tend to move at glacial speed. Yeah. Uh, but but talk to us about what this entails and, and, and the financial ramifications, which I think are significant. Yeah, the, the Presto Pass, as you just mentioned, in terms of a, a, as it relates to a brief history lesson, it was back in 2006 that the province was shopping it around to primarily GTHA municipalities. And it was, as you've suggested, Bill, to get users onto a universal pass system rather than the traditional systems that individual municipalities had adopted over the years. And so here locally, we allow people to get on with cash. So whether it's, um, you know, coins or, or, or cash, um, we also have use traditionally the bus pass system that we've had for decades and of course the bus ticket as you referenced earlier and so each municipality in the gtha had their own system of allowing users and uh, and bus riders onto the bus and the province was looking at um, um, adopting a system that would implement a card that was universal across the gtha and, and that would allow for seamless first and foremost for the province it would allow for seam- seamless ridership between municipalities. And so if somebody was jumping on the GO bus or the GO train, they would use the Presto card to get between municipalities, for example, here in Toronto. And it would also allow people then to seamlessly ride between municipalities. And so for a user, a bus user getting on in Hamilton, they could use this pass as they cross the municip- municipal boundary into Burlington or beyond and use that um, that system rather than having to buy a separate bus ticket in Burlington or, or elsewhere. And so it was it was the future, as you've suggested. And I think for most people who've grown up with a mobile device in their hand, it just makes all kinds of sense, right? There very few millennials, I'm sure, today are, are buying bus tickets or using cash to get on the system. Most people have a card. And in some other areas of North America, they're, they're using their phone to get on. And I, that is something that will be coming soon, I think, to the Presto system. So that's the history in terms of where we were at. We were, at the start of this process, the province was largely paying for the costs of the purchase of those machines as well as the implementation. And so it does take some time to get it um, onto buses. And um, and that transition um, has taken place now over the last decade. So we signed on in 2006. I think the Presto was unveiled here in the city in 2010 or 2011, and we've been using it ever since. Unfortunately, the cost to maintain that the Presto system here in Hamilton has steadily increased as well. 
And at a time when, you know, we're trying to lower our budgets uh, south of 3%, um, you know, everyone between Winona and Flamborough is anxiously awaiting us to get into the twos right now. And right now we sit at 3.5%. Um, at a time when we're trying to lower the budget, we continue to see annual cost increase that are well above inflation rates. And so this year alone, the, the cost pressure on, on the city's budget is almost $900,000 as it relates to Presto. And so we're forced. We're forced to use the system. It's now a, it's now a condition of, of receiving uh, gas tax monies. Uh, right now, Hamilton receives $11 million a year in gas tax revenues, and that comes from other levels of government. And in order to secure those funds on an annual basis, you have to use Presto. So if you were to say tomorrow we want to opt out, you would probably jeopardize that $11 million here locally. So it's a form of, as I've, ca- I've categorized it in the past, as a form of political blackmail. Well, that was a really heated debate when they came down with that really manifesto and said, if you're not in, you're not getting the money. That's right. And so, you know, we're, we're forced to pay these increasing costs. We have, no, we have a 10-year contract right now that runs through till 2027. And by 2027, we will be paying over $4 million a year in commission fees for Presto. And, and so this whole debate around, yes, we understand it's the future, and yes, there will be a transition period between, you know, an older generation who are accustomed to using bus passes and bus tickets versus a younger generation who openly welcome the Presto system. So it's, 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 it's almost less about how we make that transition and more about the financials bill. And, and this really is, as I mentioned earlier, this is really should be a, a provincial cost. I mean, it, it is a provincial system. It's procured through Metrolinks. Um, and, and so the fact that municipalities are paying to encourage people to essentially uh, travel into regionally through public transit, I think, is a, is a penalty to municipalities and is a disincentive for municipalities to want to adopt other technologies that may come from the province in the future. Well, and let's talk about some of this money. You just mentioned uh, this, this idea of paying commissions, uh, which I still think is a bit of a scam anyway, as far as the, the provinces, or Metrolinks technically, but I mean, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the province. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's based on about 80% of uh, annual transit revenue. But if you don't attain that level, you still have to pay the whole freight. Yeah, we're forced to pay whether we... <laughs> We're forced to pay irrespective of what metrics you want to use. This is like this is like paying protection money, isn't it? It is. And then, you know, in our report, it said, well, there are savings that come with gravitating away from the bus tickets and bus passes. And so we do pay variety, largely variety stores every year, the cost to, to the city in terms of having bus tickets um, in, in those locations is, is roughly over $300,000 a year. Of course, we have to print bus tickets, and so the printing costs are over 100000 so there are some savings that come to the city. It's one-time savings that come would come this year, and, and that's just over $400,000. But this year alone, our cost increase on the city's budget is $900,000 for Presto. So those savings are immediately wiped out. And again, we're, we're forced to have this conversation about, um, you know, uh, how, how strong do we feel about, about utilizing the system and what options do we have? And I think yesterday at the committee, there was growing frustration around the table that the city really doesn't have any options. We really are held hostage, and to use the term I think Councillor Ferguson used, it's really a forced marriage here, and the circumstances and, and the arrangement has been um, essentially devised by the province and by extension through Metrolinks. And so we're, we're in a financial tough, financially we're in a tough spot. There will be some you know, angst, I think, amongst our users. I believe we have over 3,000 people a, mo- a month that still purchase a bus pass and there will be others who still use bus tickets 
So it, it will affect thousands of people across the city who are transit users in 2020, Bill. The phase-out date is, is later this year. And, of course, it, it will have a fin- there will be financial implications for all Hamiltonians when the city passes its budget, um, you know, in just a, a month or two. Has anybody crunched those numbers, though, Chad? Uh, for somebody who, for instance, buys tickets still uh, and now is going to have to use this. Now, and, and by the way, for people who don't understand, the, the, the Presto cards, like your Tim Hortons card, you just put money on it and, you know, mm-hmm. th- that's how it works. But is, is it going to be as affordable as the bus tickets are, or is this going to be rather onerous to those people that are using that system? I believe the cost is the same, and so I, if memory serves me right, it's three twenty-five right now to get on the bus. If you're using Presto or if you're using a ticket, I believe it's two fifty. So there is there is parity there in terms of cost, and I, I don't think there's there's anything there that prevents. Uh, I don't think there's any barrier there that you know someone will have to pay more. However, you are forced to buy the six dollar card up front. And for someone who is a casual HSR user, it, it might be a barrier. For someone who's a regular user. Um, there, there, most likely there's no cost difference, but for someone who who, tr- who occasionally rides the bus, it may be seen as a barrier. And, and of course, you know, there are only so many locations that you can purchase a Presto card. They are sold through, I, I believe it's Shoppers Drug Mart. There are a number of local Fortinos that have them, but that's about the extent of it, including the GO stations locally. Um, right now, you know, bus tickets are available at many variety stores. And so from a convenience perspective, you, you know, it's it's less convenient. And um, and a bit more expensive when you factor in the um, the cost of buying the card up front, and it, and for us it's you know what does the future hold? Back in two thousand and six, had you told council the council of the day that we were going to run into these cost increases, and and you know Bill, there's no shortage of media articles on the problems that Presto has encountered in Toronto. Thankfully, we've avoided those locally, but in Toronto, it's been in some cases a nightmare in terms of people loading those cards and having problems with their cards on the system. I think had you told us, you know, 10 or 15 years ago that this was the future, most people would have declined the participation from day one. Here lies the problem, though. And for everyone who says, you know what, this is this is onerous for me, I don't know if I can do this anymore, uh, the, you can't have a conversation about public transit in Hamilton, Chad, without talking about ridership, because it's always been a problem. Yep. And, and I'm sure it is in many other cities, too. But as we've talked about, and as you've explained before, when ridership goes down, so does the revenue. Not just the revenue, I mean in the fare box. I'm talking about the gas tax money as well. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, is I guess the question I'm sure you've asked yourselves already, is this system going to help or hurt us? Because if ridership goes down, uh, that's that's not going to eliminate the revenue necessarily, but it's certainly going to decrease it. Yeah, and it's a great point, Bill. And and it has been tied this whole discussion of well, as you get everyone in the GTHA on the same card system. So if everyone's using Presto, the next question is, what's the province? What, what's the province doing as it relates to our relationship with them? And so there's been a lot of discussion since the election of Mayor, uh, sorry, of Premier Ford, about where the where the province is with the city of Toronto as it relates to who uploading transit services, who pays who's planning the future of Toronto's subway system, and there have been talks about conventional transit systems as well, and this whole gravitation towards a single-use card between all municipalities, there has there have been discussions at Metrolinks, and our staff confirmed it yesterday, and it has been reported in the media, about going to a three-tiered fare system. And so it, the thought is that if you're going to get on a, a gold bus between municipalities, you pay the highest form of, of fare, if you're using a, an LRT or a subway, you'd pay the second tier of fares, and then if you're on a conventional or traditional bus, you'd pay a third uh, tier fare, and and that has ser- 
that has some huge implications for the city of Hamilton because our our fares are the lowest in the GTHA, and so any talk about you know gravitating all fares to a common fare between municipalities and or having you know some of those services uploaded to the province again tied to fares will have huge implications for us and so gravitating to presto getting us off those bus tickets and bus passes takes us one step closer to that conversation i I think from a planning perspective makes all the sense in the world for the province to be involved and to have all municipalities on the same page as it as we start talking about breaking down the barriers between municipalities. My concern is, and I think this is the whole crux of your concern when you started the program, is cost. Yeah. And and Hamilton has traditionally paid a lot more, and if I use Presto as an example, we're paying a lot of money for a system we're not getting a lot of value out of right now. And so that's my concern. And, And as we see these, you know, really unaffordable increases pass along to us on an annual basis, this year $900,000 alone, and reaching $4 million by 2027, but that, that essentially is a half a percent on the tax bill by, by, by 2027. And so for the usage that we have locally, we're not getting a lot of bang for our buck, and my fear is that the province will continue to go down this road and will continue to pay higher prices and receive, in some instances, less service than maybe other municipalities in the GTHA. But the concern here, and this is a variation on a theme that we've talked about for years, ever since amalgamation, really, to go back 20-odd years, uh, is if usually these things start in Toronto, invariably, and then they, they, as you say, they mushroom out into other parts of the GTHA. Uh, and when it starts in Toronto as, as a pilot project or whatever the case might be, the government of the day, it doesn't matter which one, conservative or liberal, uh, invariably make sure it works. I mean, they subsidize it, they, they make sure, because they want this to be the success. Uh, then when it spreads to other municipalities like Burlington, Oakville, Hamilton, we're on our own, basically. I mean, the Fed, the provincial money is not as significant as it was within the Toronto area itself. And, uh, and, and as you've mentioned, the costs rise. I mean, when you guys signed on in 2006, uh, this wasn't even in the small print. There was no small this is mm-hmm. something that's come after the fact, and you have to absorb it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think originally we had all anticipated that uh, you know these costs would be borne by the provincial government. And again, I hate using the word downloading, but this has become over the years a downloaded provincial cost to us. I, I understand there's certainly a benefit to local municipalities, but by and large, you know, uh, implementing the Presto system across the GTHA, there's tremendous benefits for the province, and so they're you know they're Essentially, we're all taking uh, uh, people off of the 400 series highway by getting them onto the GO system. In in some parts, we're taking them off those same highways and local highways by getting them onto conventional transit. And and it's not uncommon to see these systems across, uh, you know, if you travel to New York or you travel to Washington, there's metro passes and they all have different names attached to them. So, we're, you know, we see this. We, you know, you mentioned earlier, Bill, technology brings advancement and, and there are benefits that roll through it. But traditionally, whenever we've gravitated to te- better technology, the costs have come down. That hasn't been the case with the system. And, you know, if I, if I compare it right now to the, to the five or six or $700,000 we might be paying for bus passes and bus tickets, we're paying millions for this Presto system. So, again, it's, it's back to technology is great. It's great for users. It encourages more people to get on public transit. I think that's tremendous. However, someone along the way at the province and by extension through Metrolinx has forgot a, forgotten that, that there's an affordability issue for many municipalities. Hamilton probably top of the list. 
Well, and that's the difference in tax systems, isn't it? I mean, you know, we we generate our revenue with property taxes. The, the province uh, is obviously an income tax, mm-hmm. uh, and and they just jack the tax up if that's what they need to do. And th- but the city can't do the very same thing because it's rather onerous, especially for people on fixed incomes. And that's a discussion that we've had many, many times. Absolutely. But the whole essence of this is is it we're glad that the province is is committed to public transit, especially mm-hmm. between communities. But mm-hmm. they've got to pay the cost. I mean, you know, they're just dumping the cost out of the municipality again. That's not really a commitment. Well, and there's, as we mentioned before, there's no choice. And so to tie it to our gas tax revenues, to say that essentially you're hostage to the system and for as much as there are problems, and again, more so in Toronto than here, for as much as there's cost escalation, you know, the fact that we're forced to use it, we're forced to pay the increases without having much say, if any, in terms of, um, you know, how these things are procured or or, or, or whether the pro- province will pay more of a, or, or of a share in light of some of the cost escalations that we're, we're looking at. I, I think is a is a slap in the face to municipalities, and in particular, uh, transit users here in Hamilton, who will now be forced to pay through their rents or through their property taxes more for a system that we're really not getting a lot of benefit from. And, and I know we're just about out of time, but again, this is a classic case of the art of deflection, too, because the people that are going to be outraged by this are going to say, well, this is public transit within the city. This is city council's fault, and it, <laughs> and it's not. Yep. Well, I'm glad you're covering it, Bill, because I think the more light we shed on it, and there's been no shortage of coverage in Toronto, and I think yeah. largely because of those those bugs that they've had in the system. But here in Hamilton, you know, it's just a matter of time before we're, we we change our system locally. As soon as that system changes, I hope we don't experience those problems in Toronto. And um, I guess time will tell in terms of where this where this goes and where usage goes as it relates to Presto and conventional transit in general. Yeah, well, we'll stay on top of this one. Chad, thanks again for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. That's uh, Chad Collins, the Council for Ward 5, of course. Uh, transit woes. And uh, it's, you know, when you use the word like partnership, and that's the, a word the province likes to throw around, that means equal sharing. That doesn't mean, okay, yeah, we, you know, we'll design this, but you guys, you know, just dump this onto your property taxpayers. Not the way it should be. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An ad that has appeared in multiple Toronto newspapers uh, over the last couple of days that was quote-unquote sponsored by a mystery organization slamming teachers' unions during these rotating strikes has caused the ire uh, of a number of different people and also had one MPP asking Elections Ontario to look into what's going on. Uh, does this break election ad rules? Uh, the NDP are calling for that investigation. Uh, Terrace Natashak, who is the NDP MPP for Essex, uh, is the, the person behind that, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to explain. Uh, Mr. Natashak, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thanks, Bill. Good to be with you. Well, look, this is kind of a crazy time, uh, and it, it seems as... It, I'm, I'm not even going to suggest that the people in this province are polarized on this, because poll after poll seems to indicate that about 65 to 70 percent of the people and the parents in this group, I think the teachers are on the right side of this, but it, it seems as if uh, the government side is mounting a counteroffensive now. Yeah, I think you're right on that uh, poll. We can't find too many in the broader public that are on the side of the uh, the government on this issue. Uh, that's why these ads that it suddenly appeared in three major uh, national newspapers raise our, our, our suspicions and concerns. Uh, look, uh, you know, these, these advertisements... Uh, come from a group that appeared overnight, a group that uh, claims to be from Vaughan. We really don't even know if that's accurate. Uh, claims to represent uh, uh, working families when the, the picture of the person in the advertisement we know is a stock photo from a woman in Poland. So there's a whole lot of uh, suspicious activity going on, and that's why we've asked the chief elect- electoral officer to, to launch an investigation and look into the v- validity and the legality 
of these advertisements. Now, Tyrus, we should put this in context as well, and why you're actually going through the election process, because there are two by-elections going on in Province of Ontario right now. That is correct. We have two by-elections in the Ottawa area, and the Elections Ontario finance rules clearly stipulate that any third parties have to abide by the rules set forward in the Act, and that means that their spending threshold during the context of an election, a general or a by-election, is of a maximum of $4,000. Now, we know these three ads, full-page, full-color ads in three national newspapers, are well uh, in excess of $4,000. In fact, somebody uh, estimated them to be around $150,000. So for a a pop-up group uh, that claims to represent a certain area of Ontario uh, and and families to come up with $150,000 on day one, that has to raise some suspicions and definitely is worthy of an investigation on behalf of the Chief Electoral Officer. Terrence, how do you track this down? I mean, this is uh, what they call third-party advertising, as you've just mentioned. Uh, and, and there were concerns about this, remember, last fall in the federal election, too, about these groups that pop up and all of a sudden are, are spending lavish amounts of money on, on ads, uh, clearly politically inclined, obviously, but, you know, they, they seem to be nameless, faceless groups. Sometimes they put a name to it, but you don't know really who they are. It's like a numbered company. Uh, yeah, it feels... Yeah, it, it certainly feels like there there are some nefarious forces out there with some dark money that are ready to try to influence the, the course of a general election. That's why we've given the chief electoral officer the legislative teeth to look into it and to compel evidence, launch an investigation, and, and, and apply the full force of the law. And that's what should be happening, because we can't take this for granted. We're talking about our democracy. We're talking about, uh, uh, you know, a, a free and fair election process. And, uh, you know, frankly, the government and the Minister of Education and the Premier himself should be alarmed and uproared and as disturbed about this as, as, as we are in the New Democratic Caucus, because this strikes at the heart of our democracy. We need to protect it, and, and that's what we hope this investigation will, will find. Yeah, on, a, on one level, I, I, I totally agree with you, but on the other level, I mean, this is the government of the day, and uh, I'm sure that uh, they're shocked, as you suggest, but at the same time, uh, kind of pleasantly pleased that the talking points in these ads are pretty much the same ones the government's using in, the, in their confrontation with the teachers. Well, we find that quite ironic, that uh, the, the wordage and the, the verbiage of these ads cl- you know, closely uh, matches or mirrors the talking points of the Minister of Education and, and Doug Ford himself. So, you know, uh, there, there, there are some suspicious, um, uh, you know, uh, tells within this ad that, that could potentially link government officials to this advertisement. Look, whoever did this had some measure of organization and professionalism. They were able to contact and communicate with uh, big, you know, big publications. They've done this before, and uh, there's only a few handful of groups, uh, certainly not grassroots groups, that could pull this off. Uh, with a couple of days' notice. So, you know, we again, we, we think there's merit to an investigation. We hope that the chief electoral officer uh, uh, takes that upon himself and, and, uh, and does a full investigation to, into what happened here because it, it, we can't let it happen. It's, it's dark money, it's nefarious forces and shadow groups that are looking to influence our elections. How much, you mentioned that uh, you've given an auction Ontario more teeth to do this. Uh, how much muscle can they flex here to try to, to get to the bottom of this? And in fact, if they do get to the bottom of this and make the, uh, the determination that there's wrongdoing, what are the consequences? Well, that's, that's, that's another question. I mean, are, are the consequences, you know, harsh enough? Uh, uh, we know that it's simply a, a fine that would be levied. I'm not really sure. Uh, exactly how much it is, but but you know, it, it, does the the crime fit the punishment? We're not sure. Again, we're talking about uh, potentially uh, trying to sway the course of an election and, and meddling into something that uh, you're not you're not legally allowed to do. 
this is the law. It's there for a reason. It's there to protect us. And uh, we would hope that all members of government, you know, despite the messaging, despite what side these advertisements are coming on, or going, you know, on what side they're on, uh, that they would they would stand up and 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 ask for some clarity and ask to you know to have uh, to get to the bottom of this because it's it's incredibly important. And I know some people may think, hey, these are Toronto newspapers and the by-elections are in, are in the Ottawa Valley area. Uh, but in, in the days of the Internet, and of course, these are national newspapers, which are read in just That's about right. every major community anyway. I mean, there, there is going to be cross-pollination here, isn't there? Oh, there's no question. Yeah, that, that you, you take an ad out in the national newspaper, especially a full-page, full-color ad. You, you're trying to get your message across to a, bro- a broad, wide swath. So, again, they were, they were you know, savvy, and, and they whoever did this... Uh, you know, had some organization. It's interesting. They, they call themselves the Vaughn Working Families. They, so they, they want us to know, you know, or think uh, they're from Vaughn, but they don't want us to know who they are. They didn't put in a website that's associated with their group or a phone number or any list of directors of that organization. So this, this raises a lot of concerns and a lot of alarm bells go off. Uh, we hope the, the the chief electoral officer takes it uh, upon himself to look into it. What's what's the process here? I mean, when you put a request in like this, uh, do they automatically have to follow up on this, or will they, do they have to make some sort of determination as to whether or not it's going to be worth their while? I've received notice that they have received my request to look into it. That's the the beginning of the process. An elected official uh, makes that request. Uh, they will determine uh, upon the evidence. Uh, that exists whether the whether the issue has merit to launch an investigation or not. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm uh, anxious to hear back from the chief electoral officer. Uh, but you know, on a on a you know on a on a cut and dry case like this, it looks like someone who had some ulterior motives, who didn't want to be known, uh, didn't want to register themselves as a third party. Uh, is trying to influence the election, and, and we need to get down to the bottom of it. By the way, the, the, I, your point about registering as a third party is uh, that's that's not a, a friendly request. I mean, that's that's the law, is it not? If you're going to spend X number of dollars, you have to be registered. That is the law. You have to. We have to know who you are. We we have to know you know your accounting and and how much you're willing you're you're going to spend. What the resources are you're going to spend to participate in the election? Look, I'm not against uh, outside groups participating in our democratic process that's why the rules are are you know allow that but they have to do it within and according to the law set forward in the in the elections act uh you know so i i'm not picking sides here i it's not even up about the content of the advertisement it's about who are these people why are they not following the law and what you know who's who's funding them where is this money coming from because that's a lot of money just even a, a low average of how much those ads cost. Uh, with, it doesn't make sense. With Terrence Natashik, MPP for Essex. Uh, listen, I want to go back to the root cause of a for just a second, just variations on this theme. Because uh, we've got a confrontation here with teachers and, and with the government. Uh, it's been a, a while since these sorts of things have happened, but every teacher's union, every teacher's association in the province, uh, both public, Catholic, uh, French, I mean, they're all there, high school, elementary school. Uh, there's a common cause here. The boards of education in just about every one of the communities, I know it is in Hamilton, and certainly I'm sure it is in Essex County, uh, are on side with the teachers on this because of the, con- the concerns they've raised about things like class sizes, uh, e-learning, and, and a number of other issues. And it doesn't seem to be getting resolved. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of discussion. How frustrating is it for you who wants to see this thing resolved uh, with the understanding that you guys aren't even back to work yet? I mean, the, your, your quote-unquote winter break doesn't come in, what, another two weeks? Week and a half, I guess. 
Yeah, we we, we uh, resume uh, the legislature on the uh, the day after uh, Family Day, so the 18th of February. But yeah, it is it, it is frustrating, and I'm hearing from parents and from educators and and folks that don't even have kids in the system that they value our public education system. They want to see us invest in it as a province. They want to see those kids that enter into that system protected, the ones that are you know have special needs and 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 are vulnerable. That's what we're trying to build here as a as a province, and it's done us very well. In the past, we have a, a world-class uh, education system. So to degrade it or be or watch it being degraded, I don't think uh, is is what Ontarians want. That's what's reflected in the polls that we've seen. That, that by and large, parents and families and Ontarians on, are on the side of the teachers on this. I don't think, uh, uh, and and I don't think the government is on the right side of history on this issue. So uh, you know, when we see advertisements come out like this from groups, we have to be suspicious of who they are. What is their motive? You know, what do they gain? Stand to gain on on attacking teachers like this? And frankly, that type of advertisement doesn't do anything to quell any of the tensions that are going on at the negotiating table. So uh, you know, things are that that makes things worse. We need. Uh, you know, a de-escalation. We need calm, calm heads to prevail here, and we need, uh, you know, fair negotiation and fair bargaining. That's what we support, and I think that's what will be best for students and and uh, educators in our province. But what's missing here is is what you do in the legislature, and that's debate. Well, yeah, I mean, look, the government clearly knows our position as the Democrats on this. We have called for them to to you know enact in fair bargaining and to. Uh, not slash and burn through our education system. Look, I haven't heard a lot of people outside clamoring for cuts to services for kids with autism within our classrooms. I haven't heard parents tell me that they want to jam more kids into our classrooms. Uh, we're hearing the exact opposite, and the government clearly knows that. That They know that from their own studies that they've initiated it but failed to release. They know that they're on the wrong side of history here. Uh, they don't need us to be, you know, yelling at them day and night. Uh, they, they, they know what the right thing to do here. But as is the case, you know, uh, historically with the Conservative Party, they like to create chaos. And uh, I don't know why they see it benefits them, but that's, that's you know, they're creating a crisis in the education system. And unfortunately, our kids and, and families in Ontario are bearing the brunt of that. I, the, the biggest frustration I've gotten, we've talked with a number of people uh, on both sides. We've had the minister, Minister Lutchie's been on the show a number of times as well. Uh, is is And I understand they're a majority government, and, and you know it's their right to, to make policy. But they've yet to explain why these changes are actually going to be in the common good for students and, and for families. And, you know, there's... I. Have looked. I've talked to other experts in education outside of Ontario. Uh, there's little to no evidence that e-learning actually makes for better students. There's little to no evidence that larger class sizes make for more effective education programs. Uh, it's 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 like you know the, the your math teacher Tara saying, "Show me your work. Don't don't just show me the answer. How did you get there?" And they they don't seem to want to do that. Yeah, we've we've stated that case clearly. Uh, professionals and experts in in education world. Leaders in education have stated that 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 case for the Minister of Health and and the Premier. Uh, the Minister of Health didn't have the good fortune of attending a public, uh, you know, school. He was he was privately educated, so I'm not sure if he has a good grasp on how vital and important the services are within it, and 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 the metrics that come with good quality education and those resources. So. Uh, you know, again, it's something that I think is ideologically driven rather than fact driven. They are, you know, and this is a this is a court uh, a course that governments chart, especially right wing governments, when they want to head towards privatization, and that's what we would probably, you know, be able to see these guys go towards if they're given another term is the eventual privatization and fragmentation of our service where, or of our education system, where if you have money, 
you can send your kid to private school and you'll get, you know, uh, smaller class ratios, all those things that we know work, small class sizes and one-on-one support for kids who have uh, needs, special needs, or you'll have a, a system that is underfunded and, uh, and you know, uh, uh, neglects uh, the, the, the needs of, of individual students. So uh, I, 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 I can only tell you they're on the wrong path here um and uh we're, we're going to be fighting we're still fighting for for teachers and for uh for families and students every day because we know the value that education brings to this province well we'll see how this works out over the next couple of days and uh, how elections ontario is going to respond to this as well uh Terrace, thank you so much for the time today really appreciate it yeah my pleasure bill thanks so take much. care Terrace natashek of course the ndp mpp for essex uh and uh, the ndp has the official opposition of course are the ones that put this complaint in with elections ontario uh, and for those who might have missed the first part of the conversation and, and are tweeting now and saying there's no election, yeah, there is. Uh, there are two by-elections in the province of Ontario right now, and according to the rules, those stipulations about what happens in elections are in play, or should be anyway. So we'll see how they respond. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.